Hey, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke 17. We're starting a new series today. We're going to be walking through Luke today to start it off. Um, we have been in the book of Exodus since Easter, and so we exited the book of Exodus, and now we're going to start a series that goes along with the book that we've been handing out on the table. So if you do not have the book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland's book, that is for you. Everyone can get their own personal copy. You do not have to share with your spouse. Everybody can have their own private copy. I'm getting great feedback from this book so far. I'm getting a lot of awesome just stories of ministry, of how the book is kind of giving them a different idea of how Jesus loves sinners and suffers. And listen, I know, I know not everybody likes to read. I hear that a lot. I usually hear it from guys. I've only heard it in the last 20 years, right? Which is, I don't like to read. I'm not going to read. I'm not a reader. Listen, I promise it's worth it. The chapters are only like three or four pages. I think it might be outside of the Bible, potentially, one of the more important books you read. I keep a shelf in my library of my favorite, most influential books, the ones I'm willing to read more than once or twice or three times. That book has made the shelf. And so in our series today called Red, and the reason we're calling it Red, by the way, is because most Bible publishers now will put the words of Jesus in red. That's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at not just the heart of Jesus for sinners and for sufferers. We're going to look at his teachings as well, specifically his parables, specifically his parables, because parables matter for your life today. Those are not just ancient lessons for kids. I think we've heard so many of them so many times that we've kind of not let them sink down and change us as people today, but God is teaching you and me through his parables how to maneuver a broken wilderness. I mean, it helps us. It helps us to the depth of handling wounds like bitterness and unforgiveness. It gives us scope of the kingdom, what the kingdom is like, helps us see what a disciple's life looks like. In fact, today, what we're going to look at through a parable is what kind of God is slow to answer prayer. What kind of God is that? What kind of God is slow to answer our prayer when we're praying what he wants to happen, like justice? God obviously wants justice. He's a just God. We pray for justice and we don't see it. What kind of God is that? Right? It's a high-value question. We see James say that you don't have because you don't ask, and you don't have what you ask for because you're not asking for the right reasons. But some of us, we're praying for some really good things right now, right? In our city, in our family, in our nation, and we're not seeing it. So what is that about? Well, what he's going to do is he's going to give us a parable to make that clear. And this is interesting. He's going to give us a parable to make it unclear all at the same time. That's what parables are really good at. Parables were great stories to make a core truth clear for some and kind of obscure for others. This is how R.C. Sproul says it. He says, the parable was not given simply to make everything clear to people. It was also given to obscure meaning to those who are outside who were not given understanding. He says, now that sounds somewhat harsh. Jesus came not only to instruct and to help people understand the kingdom of God, he came also as a judgment on those who do not want to hear the truth. And listen, this still happens today. This still happens today, which is why before I was a Christian, I would read the parables of Jesus. I would read the red letters and I think, I don't even know what that means. I mean, I know he's telling me what it means, but it doesn't really matter. I don't even really care. It has no influence on me. It's just an old lesson with no application. And listen, we still use parables today, right? Our Hollywood uses parables. We use them in school um, to teach one core truth. Uh, and still sometimes, even with our modern parables, we don't really see what's going on. We don't always have eyes to see. 
like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's one of my favorite stories. It's one of the first horror stories ever written. Did you know that that's a parable? It was written to be a parable. It's not just about a monster with no name and a doctor named Frankenstein. The parable is that we ought not, as creation, to step in the role of God and create as if we were God. That's the story of the parable, and it makes sense when you read the story or you watch it again with that in mind, but we don't. Some of us have eyes to see it. Some of us don't. We miss it. And the parables that Jesus gave had the same effect. The Holy Spirit would take those teachings and make it true and applicable in some hearts and total nonsense and boring in others. And even if you and I have eyes to see and ears to hear the parables of Jesus today, when we read a parable, we have to read them differently than we read the rest of Scripture, right? Not all forms of literature in your Bible are, are, are the same. They all take different forms. Some call them genres or categories or styles. Not all of your Bible is to be read identically. It's all inspired, right? It's all to be taken literally, but literally according to the genre in which it is written. We make some big theological errors when we mess this up. I mean, take the book that we just came out of, Exodus. We sat in Exodus for like 16 weeks or something like that, but that's what we call a historical narrative. It has progression, names, details, places, right? It's, it's a historical accounting of what God is doing in his people to accomplish his will on this earth. It was good. But, you know, around this time last year, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes. That's not a historical narrative. That's what we call wisdom literature, not to be read the same. You don't read those the same. They're both inspired. They're both very helpful, but you can't read them the same. In fact, two years ago, maybe three, we went through the first few books of the book of Revelation. That's called apocalyptic literature. You've got to read that differently. Because if you don't, you carry some really weird thoughts about God out of the whole experiment. I mean, it's just like you don't read your birthday card like you do your tax forms. Right? We, we honor, literally, how literature is written. That's, that's important for us as we handle our Bibles. This is how we read them. And parables are very, very efficient. They're very efficient ways of imparting the truths of Jesus. So much that even people who are far from Jesus, people who have no heart for God, consider Christ to be the strongest and best parable teacher in human history with over 40 to his name. He's considered the best of the best of the best. And here's some things that are going to be common in most, if not all, parables. One is that every time you read a parable, you need to know it's going to have a hook in it, a pivot, some unexpected turn that you just weren't quite thinking was going to happen, and then it it just happened. It disarms you a little bit. It's inside of that hook. That is where the core truth is. You're going to have one big takeaway in every parable because it's not an allegory. It's a parable. So you're going to have one big takeaway, and that is usually buried and found in the hook. For instance, the prodigal son, the, the parable of the prodigal son. It is not expected that the father runs towards the wayward son. We expect it now because we've heard it a billion times. So we just know what comes next. But I want you to imagine the original reader. Or if you have a memory of the first time, you heard it. You weren't expecting that. What we expect is the father to just hang out on the front porch and wait for the son to come and grovel, for the son to come and try to perform and try to earn dad's love back. And that's where the truth is hidden, right there in the hook, right there in the pivot. Our God is not like that. That's the truth we're supposed to take away. Or you've got the one with the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, The Samaritan was not supposed to be the hospitable hero. That was 
supposed to be like the elite or the priest. No one was expecting the Samaritan to be the one that handles his neighbor correctly. So they all have a hook, even the one we're going to read today. Secondly, is they compare and contrast things that we do know about to help us understand things that we don't know about. They compare, which is to put similarities together, or they contrast to put things that are dissimilar together to help us understand something we have no clue of what's going on, which is why he says a lot of times, the kingdom of God is like this. Right? He's comparing and or he is contrasting so that you and I understand what the kingdom of God is. And so what the parable will have in it is some, something that is understandable like a seed or a king or an orchard or a master or a servant or a soil because they all understood that. It was a heavy agrarian culture. They all knew that those things were and it helped them understand something that they weren't quite sure about which was the kingdom of God. And because of this, and this is the third and the last thing that, I mean, there's probably books written on how parables are. I'm just going to give you three broad things to expect in a parable. The other one is that it's memorable. It kind of sticks to the soul a little bit. It evokes your imagination. And because it is memorable, it's portable. Anything that is memorable is portable, which means you can carry it into different seasons of life, different places. They all have one big takeaway, but they have a million applications, right? And that's helpful for us. That's helpful for us because we need those truths to carry with us through life. And so today we're going to start with a a rarely taught parable on prayer. And why it is we don't get what we want when we want it, especially if it's something that we know God wants, like justice. Where we say, what's the hold up? Because, I mean, I don't have to tell you this. We live in a broken world where things aren't as they should be. Every day you get up and go to work scroll on your phone, you see it just like I see it, things are broken. They're not like they should be. We want things to be restored. That's what we ultimately want. We all want justice, even if we can't agree on what justice is. And if we are in a day and age where it doesn't seem like anyone can agree on what is just. But even if we can't agree on what's just, we all hunger for justice. We all want our version, whatever that is, whether it's correct or wrong, we all want our version of justice to come and roll over and take what is broken, take what ought not to be, and make it what it should be. But when we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we don't see it, we lose heart. And that's what Jesus is going to help us with today. Those of us who have maybe lost a little bit of heart praying and expecting something to happen Loss of heart comes when we start to believe that God's just not looking and he doesn't care anymore. He's not invested, he's not involved, he's not interested, and whenever that happens, we stop being interested, we stop being involved. If God is not involved, he's not invested, and we think he's not coming, we get bored, we get distracted, we get sleepy in this world, we just want to unpack our bags and make this place home. That's what happens when we lose heart. When we lose heart, we get cowardly, we lose our courage. And Jesus, this is... What I appreciate most whenever I read the teachings of Jesus, he knew that this was going to happen to you. He knew. He knew that we would get bored and distracted and sleepy. He knew that we would pray for something like justice to come and not see it. He knew that we would get frustrated by things being broken, things as they ought not to be. He knew that this was happening. So he, he gives us a parable. He gives us a parable, and he talks about a widow and a corrupt judge. 
That's the one that we're going to do today. And just to give some context before we jump into it, because the context here is incredibly important, Jesus is actually using this parable as an exclamation point on the end of a conversation. He's talking to Pharisees, and his disciples are among them all. They're in the mix about the end of all ends, what it's going to look like when God returns and collects everything. The Pharisees wanted to know when the kingdom of God was going to rush in and flush out all the Roman occupiers, right? Or, in their words, when will justice come? None of this is as it ought to be. Romans shouldn't be run in the place. This is our land. When will the kingdom come and make things right? What will be the signs, Jesus? When will we know that this is happening? When? How? That's what's going on right now. So let's look at Luke 17, 20. It'll be up on the screen if you didn't bring your Bible today, or if you don't have one, we have some on the, on the table out front. You could just take one as a gift But this is going to be the word of the Lord for us today. It's going to help us cruise into our parable. And it says this, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in the night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Okay, we'll just stop there. Here's the big idea of what Jesus is saying as he's teaching both the Pharisees and the disciples in this moment. When God comes back, business will be going on as usual. That's how he's going to find us. Business as usual. There's not going to be any signs. Not any big signs. It's going to be sudden. That's what he's getting to. It's important for us to see this. That we're going to be hiring wedding planners and investing for retirement, washing the car. We're going to be doing house closings. Studying for midterms, that's what it's going to feel like. It will not be obvious that God has come back until it is obvious to all. There will be no situation where you're busy on the computer and your spouse comes in or your roommate comes in and says, hey, look, you need to come outside and see this. There's flashing across the heavens. I think God might be coming back. That's not how it's going to go. That would be gradual. This will be sudden. Everyone, everyone will know all across the globe. It will happen as he flashes like light across the entire cosmos. It will be sudden unexpected and sudden. That's what he's saying. And he's actually going to give us some examples too, like Noah. Everyone was going on with their lives. That's what he's getting across right now. 
They're going to build. They're going to school. They're getting married. They're working. And then suddenly it began to sprinkle. And then it would not stop until it destroyed everything. Same with Lot. They were having parties. They were working. They were building. They were doing the things that we do. And then all of a sudden, sulfur came from the sky and wiped out all of creation. And the point of the parable that we're about to read is when this happens, how will God find us? When God returns and flashes across the cosmos like a thief in the night, how is he going to find you? How is he going to find us? Like Lot's wife, longingly looking back over our shoulder, hungering for the things of the world, like the person in the field wanting to go back and get what was really important, like the person on top of the house wanting to go down and get what is really important. Because the danger for you and me is that this ordinary and normal life will begin to swallow up the urgent in us, the expectant, consistent prayer in all of us. Because we've just unpacked our bags. We've prayed. We're not seeing God do anything. And it doesn't look like he's coming back anytime soon. So we might as well make ourselves comfortable here. So to nail the point home, to make it stick to their souls as well as ours, Jesus tells a parable to his disciples. This is 18 verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay longer over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? Will he find fa- How will he find us? Will he find faith? I think unique to this parable is he tells us to point straight off the bat. He wants us to not lose heart which is easy when we're in a distracted and broken world, it's easy to lose heart, just to make peace with this place. In fact, I think when the lightning of Jesus flashes across the cosmos, I think much of the church will be found idle. We'll be found idle. I was talking to Chase backstage. He remembers this sermon a little bit. Some of you are going to remember this as well, but back in 2000, in a field in Memphis, Tennessee, in the rain and in the wind, John Piper, who nobody even knew at the time, preached to a large crowd, 40,000 college students there, and it was a powerful sermon. I wasn't there. I was at a different conference on the same day, but that message he preached changed me forever. It's probably one of the big reasons I'm even standing on this stage, that sermon. In fact, as me and Chase were talking, it's amazing how many pastors right now are leading churches that they will point back and say, that's the one That was a sermon that pushed me into the full-time ministry. That was the sermon. And that was true for me as well. Some consider that sermon in that field to be as like Jonathan Edwards whenever he preached sinners in the hand of an angry God. Because it didn't just send ripples, but it thrust a revival and a renewing of young people's hearts to chase after the Lord. That is considered one of the most powerful sermons in modern history for us. And one of the things he was dissecting was that everybody felt like there was a tragedy that two missionaries lost their life at a young age. They lost their life in the preaching of the gospel. 
to hear everybody say, that is such a tragedy. And he tells this story about something he read in Reader's Digest. Most of you don't know what that is. It's a little book you can read when you're going to the bathroom. It's about all anyone does with it. But this is the story he says, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now, they live in Punta Gorda, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. He says, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. As the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did, here it is, Lord, my shell collection that ruined all my dreams of retirement. In one fell stroke, God would find me doing many things in the future. When he comes back, he will find me doing many. He will not find me collecting seashells. I've not looked back either. He's talking about the American dream. The one where we put in 67 years of hard work and we draw on a retirement that hopefully we did a great enough job so that we could sit and cruise in comfortable inactivity for the end of our days, just waiting for Jesus to come back as we gripe about politics. Listen, that is a very American dream. It's not a very biblical one. Sure, there might be a point in time where you can't work in the marketplace. I mean, pilots can only pilot for so long, right? We can only do some jobs for so long, and then we have to start stepping out of the way. Totally true. But to being pushed into a non-contribution form of life, where we just do nothing all day but collect seashells, Is that American? Sure it is. Is it biblical? No. The church is a vacuum right now of wise mentors, grandfathers, grandmothers, fathers, and mothers in the Lord. It's a vacuum. Now, we don't have a vacuum of retirement villages. We're full of retirement villages, which are full of Christians collecting seashell collections. We buy the dream, and we feel like there's no reason to be urgent. I mean, it's not like God's coming back anytime soon. But how will God find you? Will he find faith on earth? That's what what he's saying in this parable. That's where he's leading us toward. And of all the characters he picks, he uses an unjust judge and a defenseless widow. And this is for good reason, too. Unjust judges, they're around today, right? I mean, no doubt, you read something on whatever news app, and you're like, wait, that judge did what? That's not even right. I mean, gosh, you should know better. There are unjust judges today. In the ancient world, it was the norm. I would say today in the third world, it's the norm as well, to have an unjust judge. And that's one of his characters. Even twice we see that this person does not fear God or respect man. That's said twice so that we don't miss it, right? So on one side, we have a person with all the power and no incentive to wield it for justice. On the other, we have a person with no power who desperately needs justice. And there is the parable. And here's the punchline. She begs him to death. She begs him to death. She keeps bothering me, he says, so I'll give her what she wants so she doesn't beat me down. I love that line. That's such a great line. Beat me down, if you go back and do a little bit of language work, what he's really saying is that she doesn't give me a black eye, which means to ruin his reputation. Listen, she won't stop. I mean, I go to lunch, she's sitting by my car. She won't stop. My inbox, full. She won't stop. I'm just going to go ahead and give her what she wants because I want people to think well of me. This is awesome what she's doing. I mean, just think she is appealing to his inner character. She knew that the only way she was going to get what she wanted 
was just to go full toddler mode and wear the guy down. And it's effective. It works, does it not? If you have teenagers, you're like, I think I've been had. I know that that's been used against me. It's true. Listen, you go to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's today at nap time, just go at nap time. You will see nuclear meltdowns going on. And whenever the screaming stops, that kid will have a sucker in their hand, right? Because when you wear people down, you get what you want. And that is exactly what's happening here. So what Jesus says at the very end of it is the hook. It's the hook. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. This is how I've traditionally heard this taught, which is not correct, by the way. I've traditionally heard this taught that if you can just wear, if you can wear out an unjust human judge, then you stand a chance of wearing out an annoying God, wearing him with your petition so that he finally bends to give you what you want. Come on. Not even close. Where the power is in our persistence, we can just beat him down. Just inconvenience God with our repetition. He'll get sick and he will just give us what we want. This is where the contrast is. It's a contrast, not a compare. He's saying our God is different. Our God's disposition to you is one of love. He's not inconvenienced by your repetition. He is not, in, he's not annoyed by your hope for justice, for your desire for all the things that are wrong to be turned right. He's not being worn down. We have this view of God where we pray for something, and he's just up there going, okay, I wasn't going to do anything, but they just won't shut up. I mean, I see it. There is injustice there. And I was going to get around to it, but man, I'm going to do it a little bit faster now because that person is wearing me down. They're wearing me down. And what will people think of me if I don't deliver now? Like that's what God's doing. That's not what, that's not what this parable's after. You see, this wicked judge had to be appealed to according to his character. And you and I, we are free to appeal to our God according to his character, which is a very different character. You see, this parable is less about your personal prayer list and more for justice in this broken world. The things that we know we can pray for. The things that we know that he wants. And although justice does not happen right before our eyes, all will be corrected one day. Like a thief in the night. Like a flash across the cosmos. God will come. Justice will roll. Everything that is broken will be fixed. Everything that is unjust will be made right. Everything that is sad, as we've heard over time, will be made untrue. He's saying, don't lose heart. I would add, put the seashells down. Because injustice today is obvious. Again, things are not like they should be. We're broken people. And we, we do the best we can, but we build broken systems. And those broken systems break more people. We, we're broken in our families. We're broken at work. And so what do we do? We pray for justice. For God to reverse things that are broken. That's what we pray for. Listen, I hate what's happening in Afghanistan. I absolutely hate it. To the point of tears, I hate it. I hate what's happening in North Korea. I hate what's happening in China. I hate what's happening in abortion clinics, in school districts, on the university campus, in our court system, in Hollywood, in Washington, in Knoxville. I'm just like you, driving down the street saying, that's not right. It's not right. It's got to change. Things are not as they should be. And we can pray consistently 
because our God is speedy with justice. And I know that grinds on some of us because it doesn't feel like he's speedy with anything. But his speed is not like our speed, just like his slowness is not like our slowness. He does a good job of sharing with us how he changes, how his speed, his cadence is not like our cadence. If you turn to 2 Peter, there's a great passage where he talks about this a little bit. Chapter 3, verse 8. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's another way of saying, will there be faith found? How should we be found? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, which righteousness will dwell Listen, when we don't find justice where we want to find justice, after repeated prayers, after repeated waiting, it's not because the judge is bad. It's because he's good. It's because he's good that we're waiting. His speed is not like our speed. Being slow is not like how we look at slow. God is hungry for justice to roll, more hungry than we are. That's why we don't wear him out with our prayers. But his hunger for his justice is only matched by his hunger for mercy. They come together. They're not compartmentalized away from each other. They are wrapped around each other. You don't get one without the other. There will be a day where justice will roll for all of mankind to see, and that'll be a brilliant day, an awesome day for most of us, maybe all of us. It'll be a horrifying nightmare for many others. And he is slow because of his mercy. Mercy will be brought to many of us, justice on many others, and this is why God is slow in our eyes. But Peter says it well. How will we be found? Will we be found urgent? How does this change our posture? He actually, in his first letter, 1 Peter 4, he says, the end of things is at hand. Therefore, keep sane and sober for your prayers. Why? Why should we be sane? Why should we be sober? Because the end of all ends is right around the corner. We don't know when it's going to come. But this is no time to lose heart, no time to shrink back, no time to get distracted. I think the problem, at least for me, and I think I'm a lot like you, is that the idea of Jesus returning in a flash of lightning is so far removed from us that we lack urgency. We all know he could come back at any time, right? If I were to say, hey, true or false, Jesus can come back before I'm done with this sermon, we would all go true, that's true, we all know he can come back. But we're we're banking on him not doing that though, right? We're betting that that does not happen, which is why you have lunch plans. <laughs> or you've got plans for the week. Or you have plans for your career. We're betting that it does not happen. But if I told you, well, let's just face it. If God, hypothetical, God comes down himself, and he won't do this because in the Bible it says he won't. But if he came down and said, listen, December 25th, Christmas of 2025 is the last day for everybody. Well, I'm rolling it all up on Christmas. 12, 25, 25, 
put it in your phones, get it on your calendar. That's when everything's going to melt like wax. And remove it. If, if he did that, it would change everything, wouldn't it? It would change everything. I did the math because this is what I get paid the big bucks for. That is 1,544 days away. 220 weeks and some change. 220 weeks. What would that do to your prayers? Just think about it. 220 weeks, what would it do for your prayers? What would it do for your courage? Your fear? How would it change you? I mean, just to wrap your mind about it a little bit. I bet you wouldn't be found collecting seashells. How much you want to bet? I bet you wouldn't be retiring. Nope. I mean, apocalyptic movies, they always depict this well, right? Comets cruising towards Earth, tidal waves coming, aliens are landing. And what are people doing? They're having real talks. They're getting real. That bitterness they couldn't get over with their dad. The, the thing that they always meant to say. What, what's, what are you seeing? The end repositions all of mankind for sobriety and sanity. That's what's happening. People that don't even love Jesus get that. And we understand the same thing. We wouldn't be panicked, but we'd be urgent. We'd be fixing things. It would change our anxieties. You wouldn't be anxious anymore. What could happen to you? You're 220 Sundays away from an eternal Sunday. Think about that for a moment. Your money habits would change. What would you be saving for? Not retirement. Nope. You'd be putting it into anything that looks like it would preach the gospel as fast as possible. It would be a race to make disciples as quickly as we could, right? Every single day, nobody would retire. And when Jesus came back on 12, 25, 25, he'd find faith on earth. (laughs) But we don't know. Apparently, he's going to come back on Taco Tuesday sometime or when we're getting ready for a work party. We don't really know when he's coming. It will be like a thief in the night, flash of lightning, and then justice and mercy and glory will redefine and reestablish broken creation. Will he find us longing for this place or prepared for him? Will he find us praying consistently for wrongs to be made right? Will he find us expectantly, consistently praying for wrongs to be made right. If you're not faithfully persistent in asking God for justice, you are likely distracted into the dream that John Piper's describing. And I agree with him. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And when God does flash upon the scene like a thief, suddenly bursting into our normal day, what is going to matter most to you in that moment? What will matter the most is whether you will find justice or whether you will find mercy. You will find one or the other. Jesus, who was the firstborn from the dead, he is our big brother, you could say, had justice laid on his shoulders so that he could hand mercy to you and me. That's the transaction. That's the economy of the cross. He did not fall in love with his world, even though he was tempted to. He did not retire or get distracted with the seashells of life, even though he was tempted to. He was found ready, faithful, expectant, and consistent. Justice for sins is either going to fall on him or it's going to fall on you and me. If justice for sin fell on him, mercy is brought to you. That's, again, the economy of the cross. And this is the best part about the gospel. We were talking about this at depth in our partnership class today, how unnerving what I'm about to say is going to be. But it's, if it's not true, the gospel's not good. The gospel is so good that you are free to collect seashells. You're free to do that. You're free to go to Punta Gorda. It's a cool city. I've been there. It's beautiful. Get a boat. 
live off the dividends, walk the dog eight times a day, you're free to do that because God's love is not leveraged by your behavior. You can't reposition God's approval of you by how much you obey or what you perform. Again, if that's not true, the gospel's not good. When he comes back to grab his family, he won't be getting the kids that behave the most. He will be getting all of his kids. And yet, and yet, you're free to go out with your boots on too. You're free. John says in 4, lift up your eyes. This is what Christ is saying. Lift up your eyes. Look. Wake up. Look. The fields are white for harvest. We need disciple makers. We need mentors, evangelists, pastors, teachers. The harvest is white. So you are free to pray for justice every day, for mercy, to pray for God's will here on earth, free to pray for the kingdom, to pray for the, your neighbor, your family, the city, free to pray for this church, and then trust that God is not slow like you see slowness. He is speedy with his justice, and he is maximally invested. He still has scars in his hands to prove how invested he really is. We can trust him. Listen, I know this. Personally, I have so much I want to do. My dreams are simply bigger than my remaining years, and I think that's okay. Church planning is just the beginning. I'm not retiring. I already know this. Me and my wife, we made that decision a long time ago. No seashells in our future. No waking up to absolutely nothing but this mirage of comfort. I want to build. I want to mentor I want to play my part, and then I want to disappear into the dust of history. As my favorite quote says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. I want to contribute to my last dying breath, waiting for the speed of God's justice. You know, me and my wife, we went to a funeral several weeks ago. It was a memorial that a lot of people labeled as tragic. That's a tragedy. It's my wife's mentor. When she was a new Christian, it's the heaviest voice in her life. And it was sad. It was a sad day for my wife to lose this voice, this historic voice that helped shape her in her young years. So we drive out to Nashville, go to this memorial, and the very first person to get up and touch the mic was the hospice nurse that walked her to death's door. She died slowly in her own home, but she discipled this nurse to Jesus all the way to the last minute. And now that woman is giving her eulogy. She prayed with her, led her through the scriptures. They sang, they laughed, they cried, they prayed. She loves Jesus. Standing up there, that's the dream. Her death wasn't a tragedy. <laughs> that's not a tragedy. That's the dream I'm buying into. I want to be found praying praying for abortions to stop, for biblical literacy to grow, for males to turn into men, for divorce to plummet. I want to pray for racism to go extinct, for revival in our churches, for an awakening in our city. I will be found praying for your family, for this great city, for our future, until the king returns. My big petition is, could you join me in that? Could you join me in that? Would you be found praying constantly to a good judge who loves our petitions and will speedily bring justice and mercy to creation? That's what the parable's about. 
And listen, if you are watching online or you are here and you're not sure where you stand with Christ, I hope you hear some of the weight, not of my words, but as much as the scriptures. Everything is normal until it's not. Everything is just an average day until it's not. There will always be partying and working and celebrating and building and then nothing. You've been on borrowed time. You've been hanging out on a common grace and a common mercy. Tomorrow is not prepared to you or it's not promised to you. Either is your trip home. It is his hope that you become a part of his family. I hope you've heard me clearly. His justice is speedy. It's not slow. It doesn't miss the mark. It comes on time. But here, I hope you also hear me. His mercy also is not slow. His mercy also is not slow. It also is speedy because they come together. So I just would petition that you give yourself to the mercy of God. If you do not give yourself to the mercy of God, you will be handing yourself over to the justice of God. 